When you're going to start cleaning up the most contaminated site in the Western Hemisphere, you're going to need a good plan. Hanford's cleanup plan is called the Tri-Party Agreement. The full name is the Hanford Federal Facility Agreement and Consent Order. A lot of people that work out at Hanford call it the TPA, but I never wanted the podcast to get bogged down in acronyms, so we're going to stick to calling it the Tri-Party Agreement. The Tri-Party Agreement earned its name from its signatories, the U.S. Department of Energy, the Washington State Department of Ecology, and the Environmental Protection Agency. These three groups spent a full year negotiating how to clean up Hanford. Then they presented their plan to the public and let citizens make comments. This led to more negotiations before it was finally signed in May 1989. Everyone was so relieved, the signing ceremony was more of a big party. Over 200 people were there, including Governor Booth Gardner. People clapped when it was signed. There was even cake and champagne. The Tri-Party Agreement was a plan to clean up Hanford in 30 years. But as time went on, it was realized that the extent of contamination was greater than originally thought. The tanks holding the waste continued to fail. Much of the technology that was needed to clean up Hanford had yet to be invented, and creating it proved to be difficult. So here we are, 27 years later. The Tri-Party Agreement has been changed over 450 times. Now, if all goes as planned, the remediation of the Hanford site will be complete in 2060. That is 2060 which is not easy to fathom. At the minimum, that is six different presidents that will work on this and pass it along to the next administration. Some of the men and women that will be working at Hanford when it closes in 2060 have not even been born yet. Welcome to Down by the River, Stories of Hanford. My name is Danny Noonan, and I'm with Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility. Each month, we're bringing you stories from Hanford. Once a facility producing plutonium for the United States nuclear weapons, it's now the site of the largest environmental cleanup project in the world. Since the next generation of Washingtonians is going to inherit Hanford, we wanted to give them a chance to create some stories for the podcast. WPSR worked with a science, technology, and society class at the University of Washington to create today's show. Nine groups of students did research into Hanford and created their own stories. Unfortunately, we don't have time to play all of them, and the ones we're playing have been edited for time. These stories will explore leaking tanks, the federal response to Hanford, safety protection at Hanford, long-term waste management, and family life at Richland. These stories were written, recorded, and edited by the students. These are their voices, their concerns, their opinions, and their musical choices. First up, Hanford's Linking Tanks with Mariana, Bree, Colton, Sawit, and Leo. Pretend for a moment that you're someone who has created a product, but the creation of that product yielded byproducts so threatening that they bring tidings of death to whatever they touch within a matter of weeks or days. There's no safe place to get rid of it. You know that stuff is fatal, and you think you've got a solution. You'll just dump the less lethal stuff in the nearby river to dilute it to safe levels. Then you'll bury another portion of it in holes you've dug which reach deep underground. For the byproducts which are the deadliest, you create clusters of massive underground tanks to store them in. Surely this can't go wrong. Later some scientists tell you it isn't working. Over the years, the concealed waste not stored in tanks had seeped into the groundwater. The tanks themselves had also begun to break down and leak. And all of a sudden, you're in trouble. This is what happened over at the Hanford site. Welcome to 
the Hanford Podcast. In this segment, you'll be hearing about what the tanks are, why they're leaking, and why it's important to fix this situation. At the Hanford site, there are 177 tanks storing radioactive waste generated from nuclear reactors dating back to the era of World War II. And of those, there are 28 double-shelled tanks, which offer another layer of protection in comparison to the single-shelled tanks. The reason why the radioactive waste was stored within these tanks was because they wanted to have a place to temporarily store the waste until a permanent solution could be found. Years went by, and no concrete solution had been created. At this point, the tanks had exceeded their operational lifespan. And over the years, they started to leak. So how do they know when tanks leak? We asked the Assistant Director for Nuclear Safety at the Oregon Department of Energy, Ken Niles, to explain. The double shell tanks uh, have, again, that space in between the two tanks called the annulus. And there's instrumentation that's within those uh, areas and other instrumentation that can be lowered into it. Uh, With the older single shell tanks, you don't have that option, but there are wells that go into the ground adjacent to and in some cases beneath the tanks. Uh, So you're able to determine when you get radioactive material uh, detected within those uh, systems. Uh, In some cases, the leaks have been uh, significant enough in the past that they've been able to determine a leak because of the level of the tank uh, or the level of the waste inside the tank has, has actually dropped enough to be noticeable. So there's a couple different ways, and and none are are absolutely foolproof. The news of leakage broke out on February 15, 2013. Governor Jay Inslee had announced to the world that a radioactive waste storage tank at Hanford was leaking an estimated 150 to 300 gallons per year. A week later, on February 22, 2013, Jay Inslee made a second announcement to the world. Six more tanks were confirmed to be leaking at an estimated rate of 15 gallons per year. And what makes matters worse is that these tanks were known to be leaking years before those announcements. They were King 5 investigators who uncovered reports dating back to October of 2011, stating that they had detected leakage from the tanks. One interesting thing to note about this is that when we interviewed Ken Niles, he informed us that they actually knew the tanks were leaking as early as the 1950s. First tanks went into operation in late 1944, And by the mid-1950s, the workers at Hanford had begun to suspect that some of the tanks were leaking. There's a huge amount of radioactivity that's been leaked from the tank farms, uh, you know, since the 1950s. Now, according to Hanford.gov, construction of the double-shell tanks didn't begin until 1968. If my calculations are correct, there is about a 10-year difference between when the workers felt like there was a leak and when the replacement tanks were built. We need to approach prevention of the leaking tanks with caution, but also acknowledge the importance of doing so. The more time that passes means more corruption to the tanks and inevitably more damage. The environment, people, and the animals in the immediate surrounding area are in danger, and not only that, but this nuclear waste travels. We need to improve the conditions of the tanks that are leaking harmful radiation into the very soil of the earth we live on. Progress on this issue demands urgency. Some options we can use to address leaking tanks can be increasing the monitoring and testing time, 
for these tanks. We can develop new recovering technologies for a hopeful return to a healthy environment. Designing and building brand new tanks is viable, but this is an expensive method that can take up to 10 years and transfer the waste is an issue in itself. We need to address the already leaked waste that is threatening global ecosystems and the health of our Earth. Currently, there is a tri-party agreement that is a legal document that has specific cleanup goals over the many decades. This document is reviewed often to make sure goals are being completed by certain dates and adjustments are made if needed. The cleanup is of the soil, groundwater, and reactors. We only have one planet and one opportunity to prevent further nuclear waste pollution as a direct result of the leaking tanks. Next up, a story about the federal government's response to Hanford cleanup from Logan, Mudassar, Danny, Lindsay, and Ty. The Hanford cleanup effort is big, really big. One estimate says that if we're lucky, it'll take over $100 billion and another 30 years before the nuclear waste is effectively sealed off. Three different government agencies, the Federal Department of Energy and Environmental Protection Agency and Washington's Department of Ecology, all have different responsibilities related to Hanford. One of the least publicized issues regarding the cleanup is the legal challenge of compelling every group to fulfill their obligations. We sat down with Tom Carpenter, Executive Director of the Hanford Challenge, to talk about some of the legal issues facing the Hanford site today. And one sentiment crops up multiple times during the interview. The Department of Energy, who's in charge of the cleanup, isn't doing enough. In fact, multiple lawsuits are currently being pursued against the DOE for not performing to standard in the cleanup effort. One such suit says the federal government isn't meeting vital milestones in the process. This is, uh, unfortunately, um, one in a series of lawsuits that has already been brought by the state of Washington. And, uh, you know, we need to go back in history a little bit, which is uh, up until uh, uh, 1989, you know, Hanford was started in, in, in 1943 um, and uh, started making uh, plutonium in 1945, and it was a, you know, national security facility run by the military. And, and over time, uh, although that, you know, it, it, it went to civilian control, um, it, it was still classified in national security and highly secret. Uh, and so they, they didn't have any accountability uh, for environmental releases or for worker health and safety uh, or for any of that. So the state of Washington had uh, no influence or, or regulatory control over what happened at the Hanford site. Um, however, that changed uh, in uh, the 1980s. The federal courts uh, ruled that uh, these sites were subject to environmental oversight. Uh, and so the state of Washington threatened to sue the Hanford site. Um, rather than go through that lawsuit, the, uh, the federal government came to an agreement for cleanup deadlines. Uh, and that's called the Tri-Party Agreement. The document that the groups use to establish responsibility is called the Tri-Party Agreement. The agreement is about 90 pages of legalese, spelling out that the Department of Energy is in charge of the project, and the other two departments lend a hand when needed. So it's almost like you're asking this, this old dog, Department of Energy, to go out and do new tricks, but it only knows the old tricks. Um, and it did a bad job of creating the mess. So they have habits of secrecy. They have habits of denial, uh, deception, um, bad management. It's, it's a broken system, uh, and uh, because there's so much money passing, being passed around here, and so many people benefiting, um, then it, it continues. Um, so it's uh, that that needs to be 
dealt with for what it is, which is essentially corruption on a massive scale uh, that doesn't produce the cleanup that the, the public needs to have. So until Congress and an administration comes in, recognizes this for what it is, and takes steps to change it, we're going to continue to see the same thing, which is waste of, of government money in the billions of dollars, uh, fraud, uh, lack of cleanup. And basically what's happened at Hanford is they keep doing the same job over and over again, and which is going nowhere. We asked Tom if there was anything he wanted to alert the next generation of Washingtonians. Um, young people, at least some young people, need to kind of really get involved um, in, in Hanford, understand what the stakes are. Uh, you, you know, we've seen what happened at Fukushima. We know that this technology is inherently dangerous, that these materials are inherently dangerous. The government has been aiming for this cleanup to be finished within our lifetime. As a generation that will be having to grow up with this issue, we need to be aware of it, and we need to be willing to hold officials responsible for handling the cleanup in a timely manner. And now a story about nuclear safety procedures from Joshua, David, Rico, Drew, and Brittany. Safe as mother's milk. This is what Hanford officials stated to the press when questioned about the Green Run, an experimental and deliberate release of nearly 8,000 curies of iodine-131 in 1949. In comparison, the accident at Three Mile Island decades later released between 15 to 24 curies of radioactive iodine-131. Particularly disturbing is that officials repeatedly claimed that not one atom was released from the facility. The Hanford Project points out that the release of iodine-131 was transferred from the Hanford facility to local residents through the consumption of locally grown produce harvested from contaminated sites or through milk taken from cows who had grazed on contaminated forage. So much for safe as mother's milk. That's utterly shocking, Brittany. If we also look at the people who work or have worked at DOE facilities, including Hanford, that have come in contact with radiation, there's evidence of excess cancers including lung, brain, myeloma, leukemia, and other lymphatic cancers. The protocols obviously are not strict enough. From Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility, we see that they believe, quote, that current radiation standards do not adequately protect workers and the public. Many studies of nuclear workers show that cancer deaths increase with increased exposure to low-level radiation, particularly among workers exposed at a greater age when they may be more genetically susceptible to DNA damage. In spite of past government assurances that nuclear weapons tests were indeed safe, the National Cancer Institute's recent study indicates that tens of thousands of Americans can expect to get thyroid cancer from just one of the radioactive substances released by atmospheric bomb testing. Hanford produced the majority of the material in the U.S. nuclear arsenal and now contains more than 60% of the nation's high-level nuclear waste. How do you keep a place like that safe? Now we look to the Hanford Mission Support Contract by the Department of Energy. This contract includes protective forces, physical security systems, information security to protect important government information, and personnel security. The SAS program also is responsible for safeguarding the shipment of nuclear materials. Hanford Patrol interacts with every facility and every area of the site, including nuclear facilities. In addition to these protocols, the contract shall also provide emergency services such as fire response and chemical breach cleanup and decontamination. 
Although environmental monitoring primarily is conducted in areas outside of nuclear facilities, situations may arise that require environmental monitoring to be conducted in nuclear facilities, particularly outdoor nuclear facilities. This next story is about waste management. It comes from Belinda, Janelle, William, Ricky, and Molly. What should we do with it? We could bury it. What should we do with it? We could dump it into the ocean. What should we do with it? We should put it into ice. What should we do with it? We could shoot it into space. What should we do with that? Maybe we should recycle it. For those curious, we're talking about radioactive and nuclear weapons waste. Now, this might seem like a foreign concept, but it is a big problem. The Hanford site, located in the southeast corner of Washington State, has become the nation's most contaminated nuclear site. The Hanford site began in 1943 during World War II. It was the world's first plutonium production reactor and helped produce one of the two atomic bombs that was dropped on Japan. By the time production had stopped at Hanford, 53 million gallons of radioactive waste were left stored in 177 storage tanks. But these tanks weren't meant to last forever. The government has informed us that over 14 of the tanks are leaking and without immediate intervention could contaminate tons of people. So what are we going to do with all of this waste? We are going to go to the panel to check out some more detail about the options we just mentioned. One solution to dispose of waste from sites like Hanford is to bury it. It seems intuitive. The earth is where we got it in the first place, and we've let the earth recycle our garbage and waste for our entire species' history. The problem is it's not able to break down this waste in its usual ways. A company based in the UK called Pangea Resources has identified the best geological configurations for long-term storage. The geology has to have been stable for several hundred million years so that the storage is not as reliant on man-made tanks. The storage places would be very deep underground, 20 square kilometers, and form from sedimentary basins where it is cool. The United States standing alone has a burial alternative proposal to Hanford called Yucca Mountain, but it does not pass all these scientific requirements. The rock is volcanic tough, and though it is in the desert, rising water tables may someday become a problem. Option two would be to throw it into the ocean. Since World War II, multiple countries from around the world have dumped containers full of nuclear waste into the ocean. And yes, it sounds terrible upon first hearing. The Russians are now in a position where they have to figure out what to do with their waste because it has started to leak onto the ocean floor. So, because of this, dumping is internationally illegal. But, maybe we just did not use the right materials when putting it into the ocean. And if it's in the ocean, it will be out of the way of all human inhabitants. We will then not have to pay people living close to where these materials are being dropped. We will not have to worry about people digging them up anytime soon. And we can make sure to have an international agreement that these areas will be off-limits and countries will have to follow certain protocol when dumping and burying deep within the ocean floor. Option 3. Put it in ice. This involves placing nuclear waste into heat-generating containers which would then be placed into massive ice sheets from Greenland or Antarctica. The containers will then melt the surrounding ice, causing the nuclear waste to move deeper within the ice sheet. Eventually, the ice would refreeze, creating a thick barrier above the waste. The idea has mainly been thought of for high-level waste. Currently, Hanford has two-thirds of the U.S.'s high-level waste by volume. Unfortunately, the idea was rejected back in 1959 when many countries signed the Antarctica Treaty and has not been considered an option since 1980. 
but our world is in such a predicament, we need to be sure to keep all options on the table. Option four is shooting the nuclear waste into space. Now, because the nuclear waste problem is a severe issue, I propose that we actually try to solve the issue by collecting all the nuclear waste and shooting into space. While with an extreme issue, it constitutes for an extreme solution. And by shooting nuclear waste into space, we would be able to effectively get rid of all of the nuclear waste. And it's not like we haven't put nuclear waste in space before either. As the rover on Mars, the Curiosity rover is powered by converting nuclear energy into electricity. Option five can be recycling. The problem is it costs a lot, billions of dollars, and Hanford doesn't have a budget available for that. Another issue is we don't really know if it's better for the environment. Recycling nuclear waste is extracting usable elements out of the waste for energy production, but then we'll still have leftover radioactive material. So we'll still need a place to contain that waste. In the end, recycling reduced some amount of waste, but back to square one, what do we do with the leftover waste? Also, nuclear waste contains plutonium, which is the main ingredient for making nuclear weapons. The possibility of terrorists getting plutonium is a major reason why the U.S. doesn't recycle. The Hanford officials don't even mark their vents when they transport the waste because of that. At first, recycling seems like a safer solution, but it might be too expensive and too risky. You have now heard all of our ideas for what to do with this waste. Some may seem crazy, others may just seem impossible, but it's what the global community has to work with. What would you do if you were in charge? Would you scrap all of these ideas and come up with a new one? Would you pick one of ours? Keep in mind, the longer you wait, the more contaminated Hanford is getting, so hurry. The future lies in your hands. Our final story is about family life in Richland, the city that's next to Hanford where many of the workers live. Comes to us from Mason, Michelle, Maria, Illyria, and Kevin. So let me get this straight. You're going to build a facility in the northwest region of the U.S. while housing the most epically terrifying atomic bomb to change the tide of war and kick hundreds of residents out of Richland with little to no warning. Sounds like it's going to be a huge blast. Today, we're going to discuss what family life was like before and during Richland's height of population as Hanford's projects were in full swing, as well as what Richland is like currently. So let's start at the very beginning. Dating all the way back to 1860, the first white settlement was inhabited in White Bluffs by the Brugmans, and before them lived on by the Wanapum Indians. Richland as a city was later established in the early 1900s. Like the other neighboring towns such as Hanford and White Bluffs, Richland was an agricultural town and flourished as such. It was mainly known for their variety of fruits and vegetables, which they sold outside the region. The help of railroads and steamboats managed the transportation of these goods. I mean, it sounds pretty good, right? Well, unfortunately, this only lasted for so long. The Manhattan Engineer District selected Richland as the site of Hanford Engineer Workers Village because of its close proximity to the major production areas at the northern end of the nuclear reservation. It was considered to be sufficiently distant from the production facilities for security and safety purposes. Offers were made for the inconvenience that was bestowed upon the people of Richland, but due to time being a crucial issue, the government evicted the residents as soon as they could. 
Though it's stated that 30 days were allowed for residents to leave their homes, a lot of people were actually only given 48 hours. After the war was over, the people who were forced to move finally learned what had been going on on their old land. Unfortunately, though, the Brugmans would never get to see their land again. They passed away before the land was open for tours as it is currently. One of the granddaughters of the Brugmans wrote a letter describing the experience her grandparents went through when they were told to leave their home. Army officers in two jeeps drove up to their house with devastating news that would change their lives forever. They were handed official government evacuation documents and told that they had 30 days to evacuate. They had no idea that the ranch was being condemned as part of the effort to win World War II, nor were they given an, expla an explanation. They discovered the reason for the evacuation only after World War II ended. Because of this action in 1943, not just the Brugmans were affected, but hundreds of residents were kicked out. This was done to aid wartime urgencies in the construction of a plutonium production facility in a short time span, what we now affectionately call Hanford. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was how Richland came to be Richland. During the Manhattan Project's beginning stages of creating a nuclear town, Richland stretched over 670 square miles and gave an increase to a population of 300 people to 25,000 by the end of World War II in August 1945. Everybody had specific jobs at Hanford, and nobody knew what other sections of the plant did. No one ever spoke outside of work about they, what they were doing, but they were happy as told by most employees. Apparently, health and environmental effects of different types and levels of radiation exposure was not on the government's top priority list. To be fair, though, Many precautions were taken to help shorten any kind of exposures to the community. How they did this was to build tall stacks of buffering systems to help distribute the emissions and dilute the poison gases to safe levels of radioactivity, and I put quotation marks around safe. With the end of the war, the shutdown of the last production reactor in 1987, the area of the atomic production site transitioned to environmental cleanup and technology. After World War II, some of the residents that were employed at the Hanford site decided to live in Richland. Now, many Richland residents are employed at the Hanford site in its environmental cleanup mission. These days, the land is also used for agriculture and is seen as a mecca for the wine world. It's a prime spot to take a tour to see how wine is made. However, the plant still remains. And although its mission has changed to cleanup, the damage still remains. The absence of physical buildings across the site does not mean that there is an absence of contamination. Even in places on site that look like they are empty and undeveloped, you can still find significant contamination. Tours are given today of the remnants of Hanford's old town buildings. You can see a church, a school, cookhouse, and the destroyed house of the Brugman family. These all serve as reminders for those who lived there before. So you might be wondering why we chose to talk about Hanford and Richland's community. And even if you're not, I'm going to tell you anyway. Well, the answer is simple. This project has affected people, just like you and me. Those people who lived at Richland before and during the plutonium production were people trying to make a living, just like the rest of us. 
Even now, the people who live in Richland, who are part of the Environmental Cleanup Project, you can't ever look at something as black and white. Everything is shades of gray. Some families are ushered out, only for others to take their place. It's unfortunate how this project came about. But if there was any good to come out of this, some people got a chance at living a relatively normal life in a time of crisis. So let's not forget the sacrifices that were made by those people before and during the war, and the people who live there now. That's it for this episode of Down by the River Stories of Hanford. I want to thank all the students that participated in this project. Your hard work was greatly appreciated. I also wanted to give a big thanks to Dr. Shannon Cram for allowing WPSR to collaborate with her class. You can listen to all of the students' full stories on our website, as well as listen to other episodes of this podcast via iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Just go to WPSR.org and click on the Hanford tab. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>